Please join me as together we prepare to hear God's word in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for this day of rest that you've given us to worship you with your people and to hear your word. Many of us come to you now worn out, troubled by many things, and yet we praise you that you continually give us great comfort and peace and meet us in the preaching of your word. We ask that you would illuminate our minds, open our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Help us to pay attention to your word and receive it with truth, receive the truth with faith and love and humility so that it might bear fruit in our daily lives. Help us most of all to see the beauty and glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this evening comes from the Gospel of John. We'll be reading chapter 13, starting with verse 36 through chapter 14, verse 6. That can be found in your pew Bibles on page 900. Join now and hear the reading of God's word. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How, do, how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of God. So we sweep into the uh, passage this evening that is, uh, has elements of it that are very familiar to Christian people across the world. Uh, the whole statement there in verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life, was emblazoned behind the preacher at Billy Graham Crusades. All across the world, those words were stuck out. Wherever you saw Billy preaching, those were the words behind him. They're a summary of the gospel, as we'll see. But the context very often is lost. The context is of a lot of coming and going. That, that basically is what's happening as far as the action is concerned. Judas Iscariot has gone. He's gone to betray Jesus. He's going to come back with a, a small army of people to arrest Jesus later on that evening. Jesus has been talking about going. He's been talking about going for a long time, of course, but the talk about him going has intensified, and it's in the forefront of their minds. He's been saying to them, a little while, I'll be gone. And it's the little while, 
him being gone and the idea that he had loved them, past tense, was all getting too much for them. What did it all mean? What was Jesus meaning? He had just given them a command, command to love one another. It's there in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Actually, he's going to give that commandment again later on in the evening and explain more about it. He doesn't here because, in fact, like a lot of things Jesus says to us, it went right over their heads at that point in the evening. I think it's interesting that John reminds us or tells us that Jesus said that and obviously it got nowhere and he says it again and he expands on it later in the evening. Because right at this point, you notice, if you look at verse 33, where I am going, you cannot come. That was really in their minds. And so Peter jumps over the commandment to love that Jesus gives and he goes back to that. He picks Jesus up on that, verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Now, he has given some insight already into what is going to happen. When he said he was leaving them, he, you notice in the context, verse 31 and 32, is talking about glory. He was going to move from the present state of existence. I mean, they'd known him for three years in his humanity. They'd known him as their friend, their companion, their teacher, their rabbi, even although during that period they'd become convinced that he is more than that. Nonetheless, they have known Jesus in the days of his flesh. They've seen him get tired. They've seen him sleeping in a boat in the middle of the storm. They've seen him hungry. They've seen him weak. Uh, they've seen him praying. They've seen him weeping uh, at a grave. And although he's done all these um, remarkable things as well, nonetheless, they have seen the absolutely real humanity of Jesus in these three years. But he's taught them that that, that is all going to change for them. We saw that last time. If you can remember that far back. We saw that the mode of his existence is going to change. He's going to be glorified. When they next see Jesus, that is, when they see Jesus after his resurrection, there will already be an alteration in him. He'll be recognizable, but altered. He will have a resurrection body. And it isn't long, only six short weeks that he will be taken from them, finally taken from them in the clouds of glory into the presence of the Father. And the next time John, one of these disciples, sees Jesus, it will be as the exalted, glorified Lord in Revelation chapter 1. And he will fall at his feet as though dead. They will not know Jesus according to the flesh anymore, but in his exalted state as the God Man, So the mode of existence was going to change. And their earthly companion will now be their exalted, glorified Lord. But all that was still in the future. So Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? This man Peter, of course, has a history. His history is of making great confessions. It was him who said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And also making great regressions in his, in his truth. Just after he makes that great confession, it is Simon Peter who says to Jesus, well actually 
Matthew puts it like this. It was Simon Peter who began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? Peter rebuking Jesus and saying, God forbid it. That is, God forbid that you should die uh, and that you should go to death. This death will never happen to you. That was Peter. He's always opening his mouth and putting his foot in it. That is the nature of the case. We see the, the, the sheer exuberance, the, the energy, the unpredictability of this man, except that he was predictable in always getting it wrong. But he was not a man to deal with uncertainties. He wanted answers. He was only happy when he could hear firsthand what was going on. And so he asks the question. Like a petulant schoolboy, he insists that he have an answer. And he insists in saying to Jesus, when Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow me. Afterward, Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And you can see the enthusiasm. He meant it. Peter meant it. He meant it the way we mean it when we sing some of our hymns and songs. I don't know if you ever read the words that you're singing. Perhaps you know the words too well and the words just come very easily to your mind. Unless, of course, Colin picks hymns that I don't know and I can't sing them without using the hymn book. That's, that's a, a challenge uh, to me. But some of the hymns come readily to mind where we sing confessing our faith in God or in Christ our master and our friend and we loyally say to him, that we will do anything for him and we'll go anywhere for him and we'll sacrifice whatever for him. Well, Peter was just like us. I will lay down my life for you. This is the Peter who earlier on has not let Jesus or has refused to let Jesus wash his feet. And Jesus has to override him and teach him about his need of spiritual cleansing and forgiveness. But now what's Peter doing? Peter is saying to Jesus in effect, I don't want you to go to the cross. I don't want you to go to the cross. That's been his theme right from the very beginning. This will never happen to you. And once again, he's saying to Jesus, I don't want you going to the cross. Lord, I will die for you. And Jesus challenges him. He challenges him sharply. And effectively, will you lay down your life for me? What's been going on right from the beginning of John's gospel? Behold the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. He is the Lamb of God who dies in the place of his people. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Or in the prophecy of the high priest, one man should die for the people. Jesus is going to die for his people. Peter cannot do that for him. Peter cannot take that role. He cannot fulfill that mission. Peter cannot die for Jesus or die for you and me. Jesus had to die for Peter. And so he challenges him there. He, he reminds him that the laying down of his life part was Jesus laying down his life for me. Will you lay down your life 
for me. The Son of Man has come to lay down his life for his people. So Jesus corrects him. Do you notice in verse 36, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. I want you to notice that Peter's misunderstanding, Peter's arrogance, Peter's refusal to accept Jesus' word, his fighting with Jesus, arguing with Jesus, his, his pushing away of the Lord and trying to overtake and over, supersede the Lord's position as Lord. Do you notice that that does not hinder Jesus saying, but you will follow me afterwards. Well, you say, that's, that's encouraging. Well, well, it's not all that encouraging. Jesus is saying to Peter, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. Where is he going? He's going to the cross. Peter, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow me afterwards. If Peter thought about that for a moment, if the penny dropped that evening, it would drop later on. Because Peter was going to be crucified. That was the death he would die there in the Vatican Circus which was an arena back then, there Peter would be crucified. And with a sense of his own unworthiness, he would insist, plead with the Romans to crucify him upside down. And so he was. Because he felt he was not worthy to die the death that Jesus died. Where I'm going, you will not follow me now but you will follow me afterwards. Jesus is encouraging Peter to know that in spite of what is coming up, in spite of what Jesus is about to predict about him, that is not the end of his discipleship, but the end of his discipleship is his glorious martyrdom in following Jesus to the death of a cross. But on that cross, he will not die for anyone. He will not die in the place of, as the substitute for, as the ransom for anyone. But he will die as a faithful witness to the one Jesus who has died for him. But Jesus has something else to say to him. You notice in verse 38, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. There was something that would never leave Peter's mind or heart. He was going to deny the Lord Jesus three times. And I think after that denial... There must have been some encouragement in remembering what Jesus had said earlier. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. That there was an afterwards for Peter. Built into the very words of Jesus that announced his denial, that announced 
his denial of the Lord, there was a hint of the Lord's encouragement. You will follow me afterwards. There will be an afterwards from this terrible event. Well, Jesus does not dismiss Peter's question entirely. I want you to notice that. Where are you going? His going away is not to be seen as a source of sadness, rather as a cause of joy. And what Jesus calls from us today is not spectacular gestures or bold claims. He he doesn't want us uh, making great statements about what we will or will not do for him. That's not what he's looking from you this evening. He's not wanting you this evening to be able to say to the public, well, you know, if they come in here and they ask Christians to stand up, I'll stand up for Jesus. He doesn't want you to make those kind of statements. You don't know what's going to happen in a a moment of crisis like that. But here's what you can do. You notice how it flows from this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He goes to the heart of his people. God's people, he knows, the Old Testament frequently are described as being afraid. And God is regularly telling his people not to be afraid especially when facing overwhelming circumstances and fierce enemies. And these men are coming to grips with the fact that their Lord is going. They know where he's going. They know the accumulating power of the enemy all around them. They know that the whole state, the Roman state, as well as the church, the synagogue, the authorities of the Jews, they know the whole apparatus of power has been arranging itself in opposition to their master. They know where that must lead and they are on the edge of their seats in their hearts. They're dejected, they're agitated. Their whole world is being shaken by the prospect. The same language, by the way, has been used of Jesus himself because he understands what that agitation is like. He himself is agitated at the prospect of the cross in his humanity. He is agitated at what is coming about. And so he says to them what he has already said to himself. In your dejection and agitation, believe, believe in God and believe in me. The psalmist said regularly, reaffirmed their trust in God like this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Or when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? That's what the psalmist's testimony. And so Jesus calls Peter and us to a personal relationship, relational trust in God and in himself. Don't put any confidence in yourself, Peter. Don't think you have the resources inside to do a great thing for me. Don't think, Peter, that you even have the, the kind of moral backbone to face a, a girl, a little girl's questions around a fire that you'll be able to take your stand for me and not deny me. Peter, believe in God. Believe also in me. And you know, that's where we always only ever are as Jesus' people. 
We just don't have the resources in ourselves really to face any trial or, or face a barrage of questions or criticism or assaults. We have nowhere else to go but to him. The only place to stand really is in this place, believing in God and believing in his Christ, trusting in him, resting in him, casting ourselves upon him. And so the divine son begins to talk to his people about the place he calls home. He's talked about having come into the world. That's That's the preface to this whole incident. He had come into the world and was departing out of the world. He had come from God and he was going to God. That's right at the beginning of chapter 13. And now he tells us about where he's going. In my father's house are many rooms. Earlier in the gospel, in chapter 8, Jesus had said, a son remains in the house forever. Jesus is the son in that heavenly household. That is his father's house. He is not going somewhere unfamiliar. He's going home. Home was sometimes called heaven, sometimes called a country, sometimes called a kingdom, a place of beauty, of security, of rest. It is the father's home. And although it's true to say that God the Father inhabits the universe and outside the universe and everywhere that exists, he fills everything with his presence It is true to say that heaven is a location where he is intensely present, where he is most familiarly present. That's his place, if you will, to use our language, where he pushes off his shoes and puts on his slippers and sits by the fire. That's the place where God is most intimately known where his cherubim and seraphim and archangels and angels and his own redeemed people are near him and in his presence and bask in the beauty and the glory and the perfection of his intensely being present with them. That's where Jesus was going. He was going to his father's house. He was going home. And you see what he says to us. In my father's house are Many rooms, if it were not, so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place. For you, there are many rooms, many maisons, many mansions, many dwelling places. That word translated rooms here comes from something familiar in the culture of their day. When a son married, this may be a big nightmare to you girls, but when a son married, he would... Uh, build something on, a building on to, the, to his father's complex. So you'd have to go and live with a guy you married near his parents. Well, that's perhaps marginally to be preferred to going and living with her parents. But anyway, that's, that's another matter altogether. And I always avoid uh, controversial issues. Anyway, the, 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 the complex would grow as the sun's came in and they added their bit onto the complex and there would be courtyards and there would be various spaces for different kinds of activity and so it would grow and there would be gardens and trees and flowing water and so on. And Jesus is painting this picture of this kind of palatial life. We're talking about a royal family here. This palatial life. And he's saying that is your destiny. This future heavenly living surpasses 
anything that you can conceive. And there's plenty of room for all the people of God and more. And that place is secure. And above all, when you get there, you've come home. You've come home. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, what he's saying to you and me in this room this evening, heaven is your home. Heaven is your home. Here we have no continuing city. We seek that which is above. Your citizenship is in heaven from which we wait for a savior. That is your home. And you need to be secure in the knowledge that that is your home. That your destination is glory. It's called glory sometimes in some of our hymns. It's called glory because God's there and we will share in the glory of God. In the Second World War, when the cities of the United Kingdom were being bombed by the Nazis, those bombing runs would come every night, sometimes night after night after night. Glasgow, because it was an industrial place, was very often hit. My grandparents lived in Glasgow and my grandfather sometimes in the business he was that he had there had sometimes to go in in the evening and man the night shift just to to be there in case there were there were uh, fire bombs dropped and, and you had to put out the fire and uh, one night he was going off to work and that evening it wasn't a firebomb that was dropped. It was a landmine which came down on a parachute. And uh, he was called to go and because they thought they'd been warned. They'd been warned that there may be Nazi troops would land and, and invade. And, and the night watchman had seen this parachute. And so my grandfather and a young guy and this older man, the night watchman, started upstairs to see if it was indeed a soldier. And my grandfather, the last moment, recognized there was a landmine. He pushed the younger man down the stairs and said, You still have your life to lead, son. And my grandfather, at the age of 40, and the night watchman were killed outright. Now, the point of the story is we know that, by the way, from the young man who survived. The point is that that evening, as he went to work, before that happened, he met one of his neighbors who said, Willie, it looks like it's going to be a bad raid this evening. And my grandfather said, sudden death, sudden glory. Sudden death, sudden glory. Oh, that will be glory for me. He didn't say that. I'm saying that. Glory is to be in the presence of the Lord. If I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus says, I will come again. I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. There you have it. The Lord Jesus is going, is coming again. Most of what will follow in this evening has to do with that interim period between his going and his coming again. Most of the teaching that will come up now in 14, 15, 16, and 17 of this chapter is in that period of separation with the Lord gone 
And when the Spirit comes to support us and help us and to be him to us as we live in the world. But we need to see that this interim period that we find ourselves in this evening is not the end of the story. I will come again. That's the end of the story. The Christian life is not bounded by what we did yesterday and what we'll do tomorrow. It's not bounded by simply the process of getting up, going to work, coming home, going to bed, getting up, going to work, coming home. We are moving. There is a, there is a movement forward towards that day. I will come again. I will come again. He will come again personally. I will come again. The same Lord Jesus that was with them in the upper room would come again personally. It would be their Lord Jesus who would come again. And when he comes again in that great second advent, he will take us to be with himself. We need to remind ourselves of this great truth all the time. We, we miss it. We, we sideline it. We put it on the shelf, as it were, when things are going well in our lives, when things are going famously in, the, in our churches and where there's no problems to face and no challenges to overcome and no threats to our existence. The second coming becomes something we don't really need to think about. And yet it's all over the Bible. It's all over the New Testament. It is our hope. It is our living hope. I will come again. And where I am, there you will be also. Get that. Where he is, you will be. Where he is, you will be. Our relationship with Jesus now is not all there is to our Christian life. We are not simply always going to have to believe in Jesus. There's coming a day when we will be with him and we won't have to believe in him anymore. Because there he will be, with us. Here's what the Apostle John, who was there that evening, writes. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be in the future has not yet appeared. That is, it hasn't happened yet. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Brothers and sisters, though we do not see Jesus, we have not lost him. He is ours. And we will only gain more of him when he returns. Do you see what the church is being taught here? The church is being taught about its union with Christ. We are so united to Christ that when he dies, he dies in our place. When he rises, he rises in our place. When he ascends to heaven, he ascends to heaven in our place. When he comes again to take us, we will be with him where he is. That's the way it's going to be. We are so united to Christ that we are co-heirs with him of an inheritance that is absolutely secure and can never be taken from us. And we're looking for the dawning of the morning when the dead in Christ shall rise. It may be at morn when the day is awaking, when sunlight through darkness and shadow is breaking, that Jesus will come in the fullness of glory. And receive from the world his own. You see what a glorious hope this is. This is in such stark contrast to the world we live in. 
Bertrand Russell, for example, in his great mystery of the life hereafter, wrote this. The belief that we can survive death seems to me to have no scientific basis. I do not think it would ever have arisen except as an emotional reaction to the fear of death. Or Professor Hoyle, in The Nature of the Universe, while our intelligences are powerful enough to penetrate deeply into the evolution of this quite incredible universe, we still have not the smallest clue to our own fate. You take those skeptics' speculations, the emptiness of their facile comments, and you put them and you see that they are in stark contrast to this certainty that rings throughout the scriptures, I will come again. Why can I believe that? I believe that when Jesus said, I will come again, he will come again. Why? Because he came back to his disciples after death. He was raised from the dead. That's why they believed it. That's why Peter could go to a cross later in his life and die that horrific death because he had seen the risen Savior. And he understood that if Jesus lives, all those in Jesus will live also. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, brother and sister. He goes to prepare a place for you. I, 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 I remember, I, I can't get my head around that. I remember having conversations with, with my mother about it as a boy. I go to prepare a place for you. What is this idea? Something specially prepared. All the bits. I can just imagine. It's all pottery barn. That's why I love pottery barn. It's all pottery barn. It's all, it's all there. I walk through pottery barn sometimes and I think, this is going to be what my place is like. <laughs> now I'm being funny. But, well, I'm trying to be. But... But the reality is, the language here suggests that the place is prepared for the person. Personally prepared for his people. No wonder the Apostle Paul can say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Do you know this is only half the sermon that I've prepared? And I'm looking at you and seeing that you're about to wilt, faint, or otherwise be dismayed. And so as an act of great mercy on you, I'm going to stop right there. Uh, because uh, no clapping, no applause is, n is necessary. But I think we're coming to the Lord's table. And as we come to the Lord's table, let me remind you that at the heart of the Lord's table is this amazing statement. That whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember the Lord's death. What? Till he come. There's a sense in which every time we come to this table might be the last time. It might be the last time. The last time we take little bits of bread and drink the cup. It might be the last time. And the next time we gather, the next time we gather, brothers and sisters, the next time we gather here, perhaps you won't be here. You'll be already in glory. 
But the next time we gather all together may very well be on that day when Jesus Christ returns. When there is a trumpet blast, a shout of command. When the dead in Christ rise first. When those who are with him descend with him in the air. So there's this great reunion of the dead in Christ and those who have been glorified. And we are all together in one place at one time. And together we sit down with our Lord Jesus at his table for the marriage feast of the Lamb. To feast and banquet in his presence. And he will be there. Right there. And we shall see him. As he is. Let's pray together. Well Father thank you for this glorious. Glorious hope. Thank you that. You have a house prepared for us. A place prepared for us. That the Lord Jesus is getting it ready. For his people. Putting all his energies. And all his wisdom. All his might as God incarnate. All his skill as the maker of the universe into the work of making a place suitable for his resurrected, redeemed, renewed, perfected people. And we look forward to that and pray that you would help us to live in light of it day by day for your glory's sake. Amen.